Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Jossie Chaco, founder and president of the global ministry Empart, talks about how Jesus saved him and showed him his heart for the poor and lost people in India. Jossie, you grew up in India. Tell us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. I grew up in a, uh, southern India in a very remote village on a dirt road with no names, um, no technologies. And growing up, I used to look into the skies and see the aeroplanes and used to dream about the world out there. Um, so it was a very primitive, um, traditional village that I grew up in. My family has been in plantation and other businesses in herbs and spices. My grandfather was a very significant business person. Um, so I grew up and I was taken care of by my grandfather as my father had some mental illness. What was it like for you and your family with your dad with a mental illness? It wasn't great. Um, once, when he was well, he was the most amazing dad you could ever have. But once he loses his mind, um, he would just go absolutely crazy, want to kill you and destroy the house and all property and, and sometimes he will just disappear and you don't know where he is and for weeks um, he'll be gone. Um, the, the difficult part was you just did not know when he was going to flip. Okay. Um, so my mother used to take us and hide us under uh, trees at night just in case he, does, you know, he kills us. And in the morning she would bring us um, back to the house. Um, and growing up with that kind of stigma, people knew you know, you're the son of a crazy madman and they would say you're going to be one of those and lots of bad nicknames and all of that. So from young age my grandfather used to say, you know, son, you need to think about getting out of here. Um, I won't be around forever and it's not a good environment. Um, so think and ask God where you, where, where you want to go. And you ended up in Australia? Yeah, um, I heard about this amazing country. Uh, there's lots of kangaroos and sheep and gold everywhere and thought, you know, this is the place I want to go and I wanted to be like my grandfather, you know, be a great uh, successful businessman and um, thought that would be a great place to, you know, start my dream. Um, so I convinced him to buy me a ticket. Uh, he said he will buy only one way ticket um, <laughs> because then the rest you have to make it on your own. And I said, that's good enough. So when I was about 17, I bought a one-way ticket and came to Australia with when, a big dream. When you were here, it took, it took you a while to actually find something. You, you were close to starving, weren't you? Well, when I was in, when landed in Australia with this big dream and um, big ideas and had a guy that I was you know, connected in a business, we had a business idea, so invested the little money I had with him, but then he went broke. Um, so then I had no friends, no family, no money no ticket to return and I was stuck and became very depressed um, and all the most suicidal thoughts started to come and then I decided to actually end my life because you know coming home wasn't an option um, so there was no point to live there and um, so I actually was on the top of a building in Perth, Western Australia and decided I'm going to jump and, and, and die. And, uh, but before I did that, um, I knew about God, that God was there, but never really knew Him personally. So I decided to just cry out and say, well, if you are there, you're real, this is your chance. 
Um, and I'm so glad that I did that. Yeah. What did and you feel at that moment? Was there some presence of God? I mean, um, I mean, initially I didn't feel anything. I just simply looked up to the sky and, 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 and said, if you are there, you know, help me. This is your chance. And then as I waited, something extraordinary happened. Um, I was just so overpowered by this presence of God. And then I fell down and went to this deep sleep on the roof of this building. I have no idea how long I slept for, but when I woke up, um, all that depressive, negative thought was gone. And there was this unbelievable peace and a sense that everything is going to be well. Um, and then I said, God, I think you are there. And I said, you can have me. I surrender my life to you. Wow. And I heard this little voice to say, you are, son, you are mine. Wow. Josh, it's great to have peace, but you also needed a job. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I mean, what happened? Yeah, I mean, incredibly for three months, I was searching for a job, anything. I mean, you know, clean toilet, serve in restaurant, wash it, but I couldn't get anything. And because I was 17, I didn't have a driver's license. You know, most people were reluctant to help me out. But that day, I walked out of that building and walked into a factory, a very small little factory, knocked on the door, and a, and a man came out with his big mustache and said, my name is Claude, and what can I do for you? I said, I need a job. He said, come in. And literally that day, I got my job, and that's the only job I've ever had in my life. Um, and it wasn't just even a job. He, he really took me in as part of his family um, and took care of me and love and care and education and employment and yeah. So that day changed my life. Wow. So you grew into the role, Jossie. You, you, you started at the bottom, but you grew into the company. Yeah, absolutely. Initially, my job was cleaning the floor of a blast freezer, um, but then grew into supervisor and manager and director and partner and finally we actually listed the company on the Australian Stock Exchange and and God incredibly blessed me it, so me finding Christ was much more than just a salvation of my soul it was really about uh, redemption physically of my life and incredible blessing for this life as well. Now you were going to retire early weren't you? Yeah I had this crazy idea about um, retiring early I thought, well, retire by the time I was 30 is my goal. So I was working crazy, um, you know, 18 hour days and seven days. And finally we were able to do that. Um, so we were looking at Tasmania, you know, because wherever there's people, there's problems. So <laughs> Tasmania is a good place uh, to have a hobby farm and raise my family and enjoy life. That was my dream. But you're, you're nowhere near retirement, or Tasmania, actually. So, <laughs> so what, did, what, what was the passion and vision for, for India? How did that come? Yeah, I had no interest in India at all. I was so thankful that God took me out of this country. In fact, for 12 years, I never came back to this country, not even once. Um, uh, but then, I, you know, as I was planning to get married, I had a beautiful Australian girlfriend. Um, then we started to talk about getting married and she had this crazy idea about spending our honeymoon in North India to see the Taj Mahal and all of that. And I told her, don't worry about it because I've never seen it and you don't need to. And, uh, but women are very good in getting you to do things you don't want to do, you know. You yes. ask Adam what happened. You know? so, <laughs> so I gave in to there and, and came to North India uh, as part of our honeymoon. And uh, from Delhi we 
took a train to Agra to see the Taj Mahal and on the train met a little boy um, like the guy in the Slumdog Millionaire movie. Um, you know, he swept the floor, came begging for some money and gave him some food and, and I didn't speak the language there. But amazingly, he spoke one of the South Indian languages that I could speak. Entered into a deep conversation and he began to open up his world. Uh, you know, his world was, you know, the slums, the railway station, the rubbish dumps. Um, then it began to talk about body part businesses and the drugs and the sex trade and the beggar industry and all kinds of things. And I was so fascinated, I asked him to join with us for our three weeks honeymoon. Um, <laughs> you sure that was a good idea? <laughs> well, I, 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 no, because then I looked at my beautiful newlywed and wife sitting there not understanding any of our conversation. Um, then I had to sell the idea it's why it's good to have a slum dog boy with us for our honeymoon. Uh, then she accepted that and so we, for three weeks, we traveled around with this boy. And he opened up my eyes and minds to a world that I never could even comprehend could exist. Because yeah. I didn't think that human beings were capable of doing such um, unbelievable things. Wow. So that gave you a, a passion for India. So right now, what, what is your vision for this country? Yeah, that really um, wasn't so much about passion for India, but more about begin to ask me the question, why am I here? Mm. You know, what is the purpose? Is, you know, so God saved my life and you know, helped me with employment and money. And now I go and live in a hobby farm and then die and go to heaven. So what's the purpose of living life here? Um, so for the next three years, I went through that questioning, what is that purpose? And ultimately, I found that, that purpose. Mm -hmm. And in that, I had really deep, two, two deep convictions. One was that the purpose for any Christian to live is to fulfill the Great Commission. And second was that we must uh, give the opportunity to share the gospel with people who have never heard or least opportunity to hear. And the third is that we must help those that are at the bottom of the social economic chain. And so when we looked around the world, incredibly found that this part of the world has the largest group of people who never heard the gospel in any single country in the entire world. You know, this part of the region has 500 million people still waiting to hear about Jesus wow. for the first time largest unreached people group. Second, it has the largest poor people. You know, a sixth of the North Indian state has more poor people than all of Africa put together. And then, of course, the caste system um, and, uh, you know, illiteracy and the socio-economic and injustice that is taking place. I felt compelled to do something about it. And, and Paul says, my, my ambition is to preach Christ to those who never heard it before. And uh, looking at the book of Acts and the early church, you know, they were sharing gospel, making disciples, and they were helping the widows and the orphans to such a level there was no needs among them. Mm. And said, how about we try to, you know, create that book of Acts kind of community uh, in villages and towns in this part of the world. So help us to understand the whole Hindu kind of mindset. What is a, a, a kind of Hindu philosophy on life and faith? Yeah, it, it's very hard to put your head around the whole thing because there's no defining truths or pillars or 
there's not one sacred book or you know the foundational principles or statement of doctrines within Hinduism. So it's hard to understand. But the the essence is that in the beginning God was there, then God exploded, and out of that God explosion came the whole world. Okay. So God is every, you know as Christians we believe God is everywhere, but Hindus believe God is in everything. So all living things contains particles of God. So the, the bigger God particles that you have, the higher up you are, and the smaller that you have, the lower you are, which leads into the whole caste system and the social hierarchy that exists here. Um, and, and the only way that you can move upwards is through reincarnation, basically recycling of your, your life. And ultimately, you go up the chain and then rejoins with God, which is the, you know becoming one back with God, is is the essence of it. And unfortunately, because of this hierarchy, that means not all are equal. Mm. You know, the, the whole Western philosophy revolves around whether Christian or not, on on the core principle that all are equal. Um, unfortunately, in our society and way of thinking, that doesn't exist. We are not all equal. So the philosophical position actually puts some people at the top and others at the bottom, and everyone is supposed to be okay with that system. Absolutely. And it is for, it is for your good to accept that position and wait for your opportunity to move up. So for somebody to want a better life or dreaming of better uh, situation for them is actually not good because that means you're not accepting of the karma that God has put on your life. So people live seemingly happy with their terrible plight and people who are higher seem to be very happy with their situation. So there's this happy, happy coexistence of rich and poor and misery and joy all mixed together because everybody is accepting of their situation. So I'm up the chain because I was good in my last life. You are down, that's because you were bad in your last life and wait for the next recycling reincarnation and then you will be like me. We, we would see that, that somebody that had something, that doing good would be to help those who don't. So what is doing good? Doing good from a Western perspective come from the Western value system. You know, all words and concepts come from the, from the root value system. So for us doing, you know, in the West doing good means, you know, helping the poor and the needy and somebody suffering and struggling. They're all good things. But here doing good means fulfilling your religious duties that is prescribed to you within the laws of the, of the books. So if I'm doing all that I'm supposed to do within my caste and, um, and doing it faithfully, then I'm doing good. But helping somebody is not necessarily doing good. In fact, I'm actually interfering in the law of karma because they are supposed to be within that situation. Yeah. So we, we would be so surprised that you would pass children on the street and just leave them there with no sense of being moved to change their situation as a society. But here, that's just the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, because that's that child's karma. And he has to wait for the next life to have a better life. So you feeling sympathetic or sorry is actually not good because that means you are saying, God, you made a mistake 
in, in giving that karma to that child. So you move along smiling happily and, and the child doesn't feel resentment to you because the child believes, well, that really is your karma. And so he is accepting of that. That's why there is not much violence and aggression, um, even robbery. People are happy to just leave and accept their plight. So when you're seeking to help those who are mentally ill or children that are orphans, you're actually working not just to fix the issue, but you're actually working against the value system of the society. Unfortunately, yes. Because if we accept the philosophical framework of our culture, then we should not be doing these things. Um, so you have to go counterculture. Um, and, and outside of that, there is no, no way that you can actually help. Jossie, you're focused on changing the society, in a sense for the common good. In the philosophical position of most people in India, is there a kind of focus on the common good? That's a big battleground that we have. I mean, you know, simple thing. You know, I go for a walk in the morning in very developed areas. See people clean up their house and the street in the morning, they sweep everything, and they take all the rubbish and put it to the neighbor's side. Uh, because people just don't think about, you know, the well-being of everyone else. And that's why, you know, the rubbish and, and the filth that you see around the country. So common good is absent in our culture in general terms. Um, because people don't think that I can change anything. Because my actions don't have consequences because everything is karma. The law of karma rules everything and reincarnations leads into things. So it is a battleground again because without changing some of the philosophical mindset is difficult to change the actions and and this is where again the need for the gospel is important because without the gospel you cannot bring about some of these changes philosophically we went to the snake charmers village now they are actually almost below the caste system i mean yeah. what, what status do they have the, well, the caste system is incredibly complex i mean you know you have four high caste Below that, there is untouchables, but then the untouchables are broken down to 3,200 subcaste. And, and then there are actually animals that have more status than people. I mean, like cows, elephants, monkeys, snakes, rats, they have more dignity, value, worth than people. And those people that you refer to are outcast. And so they are outside even the untouchable caste. Um, so they are not supposed to be even human beings. Um, you know, some of those animals have better dignity, respect than those people. What about those who are mentally ill, like your dad? How are they viewed in this society? Mental illness is um, seen like in the you know old terms, lepers. You know, basically, um, if if you have mental illness from your family, basically no one will marry into your family. Uh, would want to have close relationship with you. So it is actually very much um, isolating from the social fabric. So people would take such people and dump them in big cities or railway stations or other places. When you say people, you, you actually mean their family will take them to those places and dump them? Uh, unfortunately, yes. And that's what we have found. Uh, you know, when people in our Mercy Home who have been restored when we have tried to reconnect with their families, we have been hearing 
they have said to us, unfortunately, that's what we did. You know, we brought them to Delhi railway station and we had to leave them there and, and go. And, and then tell people that they are missing or they died. Mm. Um, rather than tell people that, that they are crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there are many others, I mean, you know, disability and, and, you know, autism and all of those kinds. That's why, you know, as you travel around here, you don't see many of those people um, in the society because they're kind of all hidden away. So, Josh, what about children on the streets? Because you see children that are begging and, and some that are left. What is the option for them? See, you're looking at all of this from your Western value system which says that you have one life to live. But for us, within our philosophical framework here in India, no, you have hundreds, possibly thousands of life. So what's the hurry? What's, you know, you're putting everything because this, you got to fix everything in this one life. But here, no, we don't need to fix everything in one life. So whether it's child or old people or whatever, wait for the next life, it'll be better. So there is no urgency or that compelling compassion that you are, you know, or Western people feel when they are here. Mm. That's not here. Yeah. Um, so when you look at a child, they're in the streets, not educated, many of them don't have parents, and you know, they beg and you know, steal and do whatever else. But that's just part of society and life. And that's their karma. What, what do you, if Hindu philosophy, absolutely dominated every part of this this community what would it look like it is very um, difficult to even <laughs> try to paint that picture right. the only thing that I can say is if we rewound the history back before the British colonization and then which was about you know 200 years of British colony here and then go beyond that to the to the Arab colonization and try to pick up some of the practices that took place and try to imagine, um, you know, like widows are, are burned alive. So when, when you die, your body is actually burned. And at that burning, your wife had to jump into that fire live and burn alive with you. And that was the practice here. And and, and, and so many other unimaginable things were taking place, including human sacrifices. Even now, in certain places, you know, human sacrifices take place. Because Hinduism doesn't have a, you know, just a, a core set of beliefs. So there is so many diverse aspects of it. So basically anything can take place within that broader framework of Hinduism. So I would not like to think about that scenario. In the West, especially at the moment, there's a lot of people who look to the East and Eastern mysticism and Eastern spirituality and they, they, there's, they're, they're very enamored with that. How do you see that from your experience? Always the other side is greener. Um, you know, what I would say to people is come over and have a deeper look at, not just stay in hotels and go to this place, have a deeper look at the society everything must be analyzed by their fruit you know if i have an orange tree and i put a, a big sign saying apple uh, take the fruit and taste it so this country is a fruit of his belief system 
as you are. You are a fruit of your belief and value system. This country is a fruit of the belief and value system. So dig deeper into every area of this society, you know, and, and see what the fruit is. And unfortunately, the Western people, I feel, are wanting something different. Um, therefore, they are not even looking at what they have. And they are not looking at the fruit that their value system and philosophy have produced, which is incredibly unbelievable. I mean, you know, all the Western civilization and society has been built on Christian foundation and value systems. And you just compare and contrast to other societies and civilizations. So I just encourage people to take a deeper look at, I mean, simple thing, you know, try to imagine your country, your society with, with a philosophical framework that not all are equal. You know, just, just, just remove that from your, your legal system, remove that from your social system, your welfare system, and see what would your society look like. Okay, if you, where does that come from, that all are equal? It's central to all aspects of, of society. Where does it come from? It comes from Genesis, you know, that God created everybody equally. Uh, no other scriptures teach us that. You know, in, in, in India, we don't have any scripture that tells us that. Um, so I'm saddened to see Western people being attracted to some of these kinds of what seems to be good from the outside. And unfortunately, they don't even look at what they already have. Yeah. Uh, so take, take a closer look at what you have and take a closer look at the fruit of some of these other things before you make your choice. Is there opposition to your groups and what you're trying to do in this area? Unfortunately, yes. Um, but majority of the people are so supportive. I mean, you know, we have Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs and Jains and all people of other faiths supporting financially and helping what we do. So I think, you know, we don't want to label different religious groups or society in general, but unfortunately there is right-wing extreme groups who are opposed to the kind of thing we are doing. Uh, you know, including one of, one of the schools that we, we had for educating some of the untouchable kids. Um, they tried to demolish it a uh, number of times. The reason they do not want us to educate those kids. Because if, if those kids get educated, then they're gonna have a better life and job. They're not going to do those slave jobs anymore. So we have opposition. Um, but thankfully not by everybody, but it is there. And some cases it is risking our life. We have sadly lost a number of people, brothers and sisters who have been working with us. Um, others, suffer in silence um, but we are here joyfully doing what we believe to be the work of Jesus. One of the key kind of tenets of, of, of Western countries is a robust democracy. India is, is from the outside seems like a democracy. Is it a democracy? Yes it is a democracy but it's Indian democracy and and it's very difficult to compare Indian democracy to Western democracy uh, because it's very complex. Uh, you know, the, the society, the culture, the religious frameworks, 
and the way things are done. So when people look at it, you know, don't make the mistake to say, well, it's the same democracy as your democracy. No, it's not. You know, we have Indian English, you have, uh, you know, the British English or American English. It's English, but it's different. Um, so same with curries, you know, you, we have our curry, but it may be different to what you are used to. Uh, so, but we have the same label. Yeah. Our specific goal is to see 100,000 villages and communities being transformed in this way. Uh, so far, we have about 19,000 villages and communities being transformed by over 7,500 full-time workers that is working with us. And they are engaged in seeing churches planted and schools established, um, orphans, widows cared for, young men and women given skills, um, prostitutes being rehabilitated and given new skills in tailoring and embroidery and, and water wells being dug and toilets being built and clean up villages and I mean you name, you know, particularly um, caring for mentally ill people uh, in a holistic way taking care of every needs of the society. You know, like in the book of Acts, there was no needs among them. And that is our, our vision and passion, and that's what we are committed to. And we believe with God's help and prayers and partnership of people around the world that we can see this nation of 1.3 billion people transformed and into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And so we have friends who are Hindus, but they embrace the value system of Jesus. And they are changing. And we have Muslims. They are Muslims, but they embrace the value system of Jesus and they're changing their practices. In fact, we have Muslims who are asking us to teach their children the teachings and the values of Jesus because they want a better life for their kids. Um, so it is, it is possible, but it's a slow process. Um, and we are doing the best that we can. And I believe we will see this nation transform. So Josie, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. How for you is Jesus the Game Changer? Well, to start with, he has changed, you know, he's rescued my life. And that has changed, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be here talking to you. Um, so physical saving and redemption of my life. And from that point, really the blessings in my life. More importantly, giving me a purpose. Today, I'm the most satisfied, happiest person than I was ever before. Because I have a purpose to live and a cause to champion. And seeing the transformation that is taking place, you know, in, in a girl child that has been taken from the street uh, or taken out of traffic and sexual abuse or seeing a, a crazy man or a woman taken from the streets and and rehabilitated and, and seeing the healing and restoration with the family. What price can you put on that? And that's all because of Jesus. And seeing how he is transforming villages and communities and you know the snake charmer villages. There's you know there's eleven villages with tens of thousands of people. Not one of them had literacy before, not one of them could read and write before but now their children are having education. They never had clean water, they have clean water. And they have toilets and they're building houses and their lives have been transformed all and only because of Jesus. How we can walk past this Jesus.
and I challenge and encourage people. You may have issues with the church, you may have issues with Christians, but you may be struggling to find issues with Jesus. So please revisit Jesus and you will discover something amazing and beautiful. You are acting as a, ga a game changer in this community and the work that you're doing. How do, there are a lot of people who would say, well, that's great, Josie, but I can't do that. How do you respond to somebody else? The kind of call that we all ought to be game changers. I believe that every single one of us called, commanded, and capable of being a game changer. That's with every, anyone who is a Christian, definitely, because we have the blood of Jesus and the DNA of Jesus in us, therefore we have to be. It's not a, it's not a choice or an option. The way that we do would be different. The way that you do will be different to the way I'm doing. So don't compare what we do to what you may want to do, but look at what you have. Like the bread and the fish that little boy had with Jesus. Just surrender that to Christ. You know, in, in my own team, we have thousands of people and they are all great game changers, but in different ways. Some are caring for the kids and some are doing the cleaning. And I believe that all of us can, you know, through praying for others, giving our resources, loving our neighbor, helping those people that you see in your daily life. You know, it, 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 to me, it's more than the actions, it's a mindset. You know, it's, it's really seeing ourselves differently and seeing our purpose on this life differently. And I encourage people, you know, who doesn't matter who you are, young to the old, if you are breathing, you can be a game changer. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.